0: Well, brothers and sisters, I ask you to please turn in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. That is the third book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus. And we are working with the understanding that the great theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God, understood in this way. God's people in God's place or God's presence under God's rule and blessing. The kingdom started in the Garden of Eden. But because of the sins of our first parents, the kingdom was in a sense lost as they sinned and they were banished from the garden. But the promise of the eventual victory of God's kingdom comes early. Genesis 3.15, the first gospel promise, where we are told that someday a seed or descendant of a woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent who is the devil. And God's kingdom will be victorious in the end. As we studied the book of Genesis in one message, we saw how God providentially pre- preserved the seed through the age of the patriarchs. And then as we turned a couple weeks ago to the book of Exodus, we saw how God fulfilled one of his promises to Abraham, and that was to make him a great nation. He looked with pity upon his people the Hebrews suffering as slaves in Egypt, and supernaturally he sprang them to freedom after 400 years of slavery, and he entered into covenant with them on Mount Sinai. What is remarkable about that is that even after they had turned to blatant idolatry in the golden calf incident, God still agreed to be their people and to dwell with them. Now as we come to Leviticus, We pick up where Exodus leaves off. Leviticus is going to give us further instructions that are given to Moses from the tent of meeting, from the tabernacle, for God's covenant people, Israel. And so Exodus leaves us with God coming and manifesting his presence in the tabernacle. He had them build a tabernacle, which would be the place where God would make known his presence to them. And Exodus 40 verse 34 says, after they built the tabernacle, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God came to dwell with his people. Now Leviticus 1.1, then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, so Leviticus is what God continues to tell Moses about what his people need to know. And what we're going to see is that Leviticus is about a holy God dwelling with a holy people. Now, as to the content of this letter, one of the ways you can figure out the theme of any portion of Scripture, any book of the Bible, is to look for words or phrases that are repeated over and over again. That's one clue as to what that book or portion of scripture is about. And one of the words that is repeated 90 times in the book of Leviticus is the word holy. God is a holy God. What is, holy? What is holiness? Holiness means God is totally good. He is entirely without evil. Holiness means moral perfection, absolute purity. And as such, holiness is separated from everything that is imperfect, everything that is frail or common, separate from the common, separate from the profane. And so the first point we want to glean from the book of Leviticus is to note the holiness of God, that God is intrinsically holy. And we want to see this by several statements. One of the most stunning statements that points us to the holiness of God, is in Leviticus chapter 10, we read these opening verses. Now, Nahab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. As we'll see later on, they were appointed as priests. And they were coming to bring an offering before God, but they brought something before God that he had not commanded them. It's called strange fire. And God killed them on the spot. And the rationale for his killing them is that they did not treat him as holy before his people. And let me read to you just a sample of the statements that point to the holiness of God as revealed in Leviticus. Leviticus 11:44 and 45. For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. Thus you shall be holy for I am holy. Leviticus 19:2. Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I the Lord your God am holy. Leviticus 20:26. 20, Thus you are to be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Leviticus 21, eight. he, the priest, shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord who sanctifies you, am holy. Leviticus 22.2, 2. tell Aaron and his sons to be careful with the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they dedicate to me so as not to profane my holy name. Leviticus 22, 32, you shall not profane my holy name, but I will be sanctified among the sons of Israel, for I am the Lord who sanctifies you. God, the living and true God, the only God, the God of the Bible is intrinsically, fearfully, forebodingly holy. And we read that everything associated with God in the book of Leviticus is holy. And so as you read through the book, you read that there's a holy place, a holy sanctuary, holy offerings, holy garments, a holy linen tunic for the priests, holy fruit, holy gifts, holy altar, holy convocations or meetings, holy field. Anything associated with God is holy because God is holy. But especially noteworthy, and you would have noticed this by the verses I read, is that because God is holy, he wants his people to be holy. Just as a sample, reading again Leviticus 19.2, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. The God who is holy demands that his people be like himself, holy. But here's the problem, 90 times the word holiness comes up in the book of Leviticus, 116 times the word uncleanness shows up in the book of Leviticus. And so let's shift from talking about the holiness of God to the uncleanness of sin. As you know, in the book of Leviticus, certain animals are declared ceremonially unclean and you are not to eat them. Human bodily discharges are unclean and anyone who who does them or touches them becomes unclean ritually unclean. An infection of leprosy is unclean, chapters 13 and 14. Houses and furniture can be declared unclean. Touching a dead person makes one unclean. These things render someone ritually or ceremonially unclean and unable to enter into the holy presence of God. And when you read through Leviticus, you see that there are all kinds of very elaborate rituals for being cleansed from those uncleannesses in order to be able to come into the presence of the holy God. Now, let's understand something. That doesn't mean that people with leprosy were more sinful than other people. It doesn't mean that there are, there's a, a moral problem with bodily discharges. Listen to what theologian Tom Schreiner explains, quote, Someone who has a skin disease or engages in sexual relations has not necessarily sinned, nor is it sinful to menstruate or to sow one's field with two kinds of seed or to wear garments with two different kinds of cloth. And yet, it seems correct to draw an analogy between such uncleanness, which is not strictly sin, and the sinfulness of Israel. Israel's physical uncleanness testifies to its mortality and lack of wholeness and perfection and is thus an emblem of sin. We are not surprised, therefore, to discover that later writers pick up the language of uncleanness and defilement to describe wickedness. You follow that? To be ceremonially unclean because of touching a dead body or being a leper doesn't mean in itself that you're morally sinful. But the picture of all these uncleannesses are a picture of the sinfulness of Israel. How do we know? Because David, in Psalm 51, when he's confessing his sins of adultery and murder, he says, cleanse me with hyssop. That was something used in the ceremonial law. It wasn't that the hyssop plant was going to cleanse him, but he's using the language of uncleanness to speak of his moral sinfulness of committing adultery and murder. Likewise, Isaiah, in Isaiah 6.5, when he catches a sight of God high and lifted up in this temple, he says, I am a man of unclean lips. He uses the language of ceremonial uncleanness to talk about his moral sinfulness. Lord, i got a filthy mouth. And he uses the language of the ceremonial uncleanness. So all these uncleannesses are a picture of, of the moral and spiritual uncleanness of the people of Israel. God is holy, but they are unclean. So here, friends, is the question that Leviticus asks and answers. How can they live in their uncleanness with a holy God? Or more appropriately, how can a holy God live with a sinfully unclean people? That's the question that the book of Leviticus seeks to answer. God has entered into covenant with them. He has made them a nation. Leviticus 26:12 says, "'I will also walk among you and be your God.'" But in order for that to happen, they must be a holy people. And so he says in 20:26, "'Thus you are to be holy to me, "'for I, the Lord, am holy, "'and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine.'" So for the rest of our time, we're going to consider from the book of Leviticus, how is it that God makes his people Israel holy so that he can dwell with them? And we're going to see three things involved in making Israel a holy people in order to dwell with a holy God. First of all, they need forgiveness of their sins. We'll call that expiation. Secondly, they're going to need a mediator between sinful them and a holy God. We'll call that mediation. And thirdly, they need to be holy in their lifestyle like God is holy. We'll call that consecration. So let's consider now the holiness of God's people. First of all, expiation. And expiation means the removal of guilt or wrong, atonement. And the first seven chapters of Leviticus present us with five kinds of offerings that the people are to make. Burn offerings, and grain offerings, and um, peace offerings, and sin offerings, and guilt or trespass offerings. And they're all for different purposes, several of them to deal with sin. One of them deals with unintentional sins. The other is an offering made for more serious sins. But I want you to consider several of the elements involved in these offerings that are made for sin. First of all, there is the laying on of hands. And we read that in the early chapters. I'll give you just an example from Leviticus 8. We can turn in many places, but just some samples. Leviticus 8:14. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. Verse 18, then he presented the ram of the burn offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. One of the things we see is that there's the laying on of hands of these animals. What does that signify? It signifies a transfer of the sin of the worshiper to the animal. That's what laying on of hands symbolizes. There's also then the death of the animal. after the hands are laid on the animal, next Moses slaughtered it and took the blood, etc. So hands are laid on the animal and the animal is slaughtered. It's killed. What does that signify? It signifies what God told Adam and Eve in the beginning. Sin demands death. And if the sins are going to be transferred from the worshiper to the animal, the animal has to die because sin calls for death. Another thing we read over and over again, it catches your attention, is that certain animals were to be without defect. Chapter 1, verse 3, If his burnt offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. And over and over again, you read that the animal needs to be without defect. That has significance later on, as you know. One other theme when it comes to these sacrifices we often read of a soothing aroma. Chapter 1, verse 9, its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer up this in smoke, all of it on the altar, for a burn offering, an offering by fire, of a soothing aroma. And over and over again, we read that as the hands are laid on the animal, the animal is slaughtered, and it ascends to God as a soothing aroma. What does that signify? It signifies that God, is satisfied. His anger is appeased because there's been death to pay for the sin. And it's soothing to God. It appeases his anger. So summing this up, the animals that were sacrificed served as a substitute for the worshiper. The sins of the worshiper are transferred to the animal and it dies in the place of the sinner to appease God's righteous anger toward the sinner. And not just any animal will do. The most important statement made about the forgiveness or expiation of sins in the book of Leviticus is Leviticus 17.11. Listen to what it says, because the writer to the Hebrews repeats it. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Is there going to be forgiveness of sins for the Israelites or for anybody? It must be through life's blood. The atonement, the forgiveness, comes through the shedding of one's blood unto the point of death. Now regarding the expiation or the forgiveness of sins in Israel the most important day for the Hebrews was the day of atonement I want to spend a few minutes here so turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 16 and we'll look at the most important day signifying the forgiveness of sins under the old covenant with the nation of Israel the day of atonement we know it as Yom Kippur Let me read the first six verses of Leviticus 16. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, or he will die. He will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burn offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarments shall be next to his, next to his body. He shall be girded with the linen sash and attired with the linen turban. These are the holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burn offering. Then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering which is for himself that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. You're getting the picture here that God is manifesting his presence in the holy place, the inner sanctum where the, the Ark of the Covenant is and the mercy seat. And Moses tells the priest, "The priest just can't go and come and go when he pleases. If he does, and he thinks he can just go in anytime he wants, God will kill him. He needs to go into the holy place one time a year. And to paraphrase what he goes on to say in this chapter is he needs to go in, and first he needs to make an offering for himself and his household, because he, the priest, is himself sinful. Notice he's dressed in plain linen garments. He's dressed like a servant. One of the commentators points out that the priest's garments were otherwise very fancy. And he says when the priest is before his fellow man, he's something special. But when he goes into the holy place, he dresses like a servant because before God, he's just another sinner. Nothing special there. And so his clothing is not the special clothing he wears in front of the people. It's just plain linen because he's a sinner that needs to be cleansed as well as the people. He brings a bull for his own cleansing and the cleansing of his household. He brings two goats. He goes on to say that his hands are laid on one goat, symbolizing the transfer of the sins of the people to that goat, and that goat is killed. Then he takes the other goat called the scapegoat. He lays his hands on that goat, and that goat is sent away into the wilderness, symbolizing that God has sent away the people's sins. And isn't that what the Bible tells us about our sins? They're buried in the deepest sea, Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west so far, God has removed our sins from us, and it symbolized the sending away of sin. That, And we're also told that there was a cloud over the mercy seat because if the priest were to gaze at God, he would die. And so the Day of Atonement points us further to the holiness of God, how unapproachably holy God is. Even the high priest could only go in once a year in a very detailed and prescribed way, making atonement for his own sins and the sins of his household and then for the sins of the people. That was to be their yearly practice and celebration. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It certainly points us to the holiness of God. It also, however, points us to the grace of God. There is a way for man's sins to be paid for. There is a a way for Israel's sins to be paid for. But listen, it's got to be God's way. Because when Nadab and Abihu, the two priestly sons of Aaron, tried to come to God in some clever, creative way, bringing strange fire at something God had not commanded, God struck them dead on the spot. So brothers and sisters, what are we to take away from all the offerings for sin and guilt that were offered by the Jewish people at this stage in their life, culminating in the Day of Atonement? Well, we have this great principle of Leviticus 17.11. The blood, by reason of the life, makes atonement. There's only one way to have your sins forgiven, expiated, atoned for. And that's by the blood of a sacrifice, a substitute. Sin demands death. And you must come with a sacrifice to pay for your sins. And Israel would have made hundreds of thousands of sacrifices and spilled millions of gallons of blood for their sins to be expiated. But we ask, what about us? We don't live under the old covenant, under the Mosaic covenant. We live under the new covenant. What is true of us? The glorious truth is that there is one sacrifice for sin that has put an end to all of those animal sacrifices. Listen to the book of Hebrews, as I read a few portions, Hebrews 9, 22. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. The writer is echoing Leviticus 17:11. Without shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. But then it goes on to say, what blood? We ask, what blood? Chapter 10 of Hebrews, for the law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. Listen to this. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All those bulls, all those goats, all those rams and lambs never took away one sin. Well, then why were they offered? Well, a a little later on in Hebrews 10, we read this beginning at verse 19. if they could never take away sins because they prefigured and pointed forward to the one sacrifice that was effective to take away sin and that was the death of Jesus. And so brothers and sisters, there are no more animal sacrifices. Jesus Christ has put an end to that whole system. His sacrifice was the final sacrifice and the only sacrifice we need for the expiation or forgiveness of our sins. And so, like the hymn says, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. We can say, I need no other sacrifice. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And so, expiation. If a holy God's going to live with an unclean people, they need to have their sins forgiven. They need to have them expiated by the shedding of blood. But they also needed mediation. They also needed priests. And Leviticus 8 makes it clear that God has appointed Aaron and his sons and his descendants to be the priestly line. They needed priests. And oh my, when you read through Leviticus, how elaborate is the ceremony that is undergone to appoint these priests. And I'm not going to take you there. I'm just going to rattle off some of the details. There's washings they go through, garments they wear, a tunic, a sash, a robe, an ephod, a breastpiece, a turban with a golden crown, the anointings of the tabernacle, all that was in it, and Aaron and his sons are anointed. This is in chapter 8 through 10. Offerings of a bull of a sin offering. The blood on the horns of the altar. Fat offered up. The hide burned outside the camp. The ram as a burn offering. A second ram of ordination. The blood applied to the right earlobe. lobe, into the right thumb. into the big toe of the right foot of the priest. All this shows that the priests themselves needed to be cleansed. You come to chapter 9. And it talks about all kinds of offerings, a lot of blood being spilled of a goat and a calf and a lamb and an ox and a ram and all kinds of sin offerings and burnt offerings and peace offerings. Elaborate ceremony to anoint these priests to be mediators between unclean people and a holy God. And get to the end of all that, all that detailed instruction followed by Moses and Aaron, and God is very pleased. Because we read at the end of chapter 9, then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came down from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat. God was pleased. God said, I accept what you've done in anointing these priests. He came down and consumed the sacrifices, showing he was pleased. What is the lesson for us regarding this mediation of priests? Well, the lesson for us, brothers and sisters, is that under the new covenant, we don't need any human priests anymore. First Timothy two fifteen five says, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Not only has Jesus' death put an end to all the animal sacrifices, his death put an end to earthly human priests. He was the self-sacrificing high priest, and he is all that we need. Some of us grew up as Roman Catholics where we were told to go to a little box and confess our sins to a man, a priest, who would then tell us the prayers to make so we could be forgiven, because the priest was serving as a mediator between us and God. Friends, that is so backward and so wicked. What an insult to Jesus. He is the only priest we need. He is the only way of access to God. In fact, not only is he the high priest, but the Bible says all Christians are priests. We are a royal priesthood. We're a kingdom of priests because we all have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. Away with confession to a priest, away with penance, all those man-made traditions. Priesthood is fulfilled in Jesus. But you know, you need to come the right way. And right after the priests are anointed and God comes down and he approves by consuming the sacrifice, right after that, the end of chapter 9, we have chapter 10, where Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, try to come to God and offer something that he has not commanded. Again. Leviticus 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire to them in them, placed incense on it and burned on it and offered strange fire before the Lord. What is that strange fire? All we know, it was something God had not commanded. And what happened? And fire came down from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. He didn't consume the sacrifice showing his pleasure. He consumed them on the spot because they tried to come to God in a way that God had not prescribed. Friends, what is the application for us? One of the obvious ob- applications is if you're going to come to God, you've got to come the way God commands and appoints. And there's only one way to come to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. Peter says in Acts 4, 12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. The Apostle John says in his first letter, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So if we're gonna come to God, we need to come in the way he appointed, and that is through Jesus Christ. And so taking these two passages in juxtaposition, chapter nine, where God is pleased and he consumes the sacrifice, the offering, And chapter 10, where God is not pleased and he consumes the worshipers, it leaves us with two choices. It leaves every human being with two choices. Either you come to God with the appointed and proper sacrifice, namely Jesus, and say, God, I'm trusting in Jesus who paid for my sins, and God will accept you. Or you try to come apart from Jesus, and God will consume you with his wrath either you trust in Jesus and let Jesus who was consumed on the cross by God's wrath be your offering or you try to come to God apart from Jesus and God will consume you in his wrath that's the lesson learned from that scenario but perhaps there's another application some try to say that We have evidence here for the regulative principle of worship, that we are to come to God in worship by the way that he has commanded. Don't try to be clever and creative like Nadab and Abihu. We should do what God wants in our worship. And, And I would say this, and I hope this is the balance of truth. The New Testament is not nearly as specific and exact in the detailed commands about how you were to approach God. I mean, you read through Leviticus, and I mean, the detail, I mean, blood on the right, you know, thumb and then the right earlobe, and I mean, all these details have tremendous specificity, tremendous exactitude when it comes to approaching God. Now you come to the New Covenant Scriptures, and there's not nearly that degree of specificity. So, how does the regulative principle apply to us? I think in this way. I personally don't want to try to be clever and creative. And as we read the New Testament, we see that the apostles did certain things by example, and other things are commanded. And frankly, I'm quite comfortable staying within the boundaries of what we see in the New Testament as far as worship. When we come for corporate worship, what do we do? We read the word, because 1 Timothy 4.13 says that we preach the word. We sing the word. We pray the word. We give to the work of the word. And we see the word illustrated in the ordinances. So you get my point. There's not nearly the specificity of the old covenant, but still, let's do the things that are evident from the new covenant scriptures that that God wants us to do in worship. We're not called to be creative. We're called to stay within the parameters of what we see as new covenant worship. That would be my comment on that. Well, let's move to consecration. That's the final point. Not only do they need to be forgiven, Not only do they need to have a mediator all fulfilled in Jesus, but if God is going to dwell with them, they need to be holy in their practical lives. They need to be a holy people. And so in chapter 11, 44, and 45, we read, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make for yourselves unclean not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth for i am the lord who brought you up from the land of egypt to be your god and thus you shall be holy for i the lord am holy not only forgiven not only a mediator but they need to be holy in their personal lives And what did that mean for everyday life of the israelite well as you read through the book of leviticus it means a lot of things Chapter 11 has laws for unclean animals they were not to eat, clean animals they were to eat. Those who split the hoof and chew the cud. If you're talking about water animals, they need to have fins and scales. Otherwise, they're unclean. Leviticus 12 gives laws about giving birth. Certain number of days after giving birth, after menstruation, a woman is ritually unclean. 13 and 14, laws about leprosy and how to recognize it and how to cleanse it. Chapter 15, ceremonial cleansing about bodily discharges. Chapters 18 to 20, there are laws, moral laws, against sexual immorality, against adultery, homosexuality, bestiality. These are punishable by death. Idolatry as well. He tells them how to treat their neighbor, how not to take advantage of a deaf person or a blind person or the elderly. Laws against partiality. Don't be partial to the poor or to the great. How to treat strangers. All kinds of laws to govern their life together. Leviticus 21 and 22, laws for priests to avoid ritual defilement, blemishes and defects. Who are they are to marry and not marry. Chapter 23, laws about religious festivals, the three festivals Jewish males need to attend three uh, three times a year. All kinds of laws, all kinds of rules, the sabbatical year, the year of Jubilee, the purpose is to make them a separate people separate from the nations essentially a lot of these rules were to keep them from social fellowship with the gentiles the gentiles were idolaters and if they mixed it up with the gentiles they would be influenced as we know happened in their history and they would fall into idolatry so a lot of these rules even the food laws were intended to keep them away from the gentiles because they were to be a separate holy people, holy unto the Lord. Now, what about ourselves under the new covenant? I'm skipping over some things for the sake of time. Well, we are not under the old covenant in the same way. We are not a theocratic nation, as was Israel. And many of those practices were types and shadows which were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. For example, the food laws, clean and unclean foods. Mark 7:19, Jesus declares all foods clean. In Acts chapter 10, he says to Peter, he lowers a sheet and he says, kill and eat. Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. Kill and eat. He needed to eat unclean foods because God was going to send him to unclean people, Gentiles, to bring the gospel. Because he's not under the old covenant anymore. He didn't need to be kept separate from Gentiles. So I want you to eat unclean foods which were formerly forbidden because I'm going to send you to unclean people. We already saw that. Uh, The priesthood is fulfilled in Jesus. The sacrifices are fulfilled in Jesus. Colossians 2 says, let no one judge you when it comes to an annual festival or a a, a monthly feast or or Sabbath. the, The sabbatical system is no longer in play as it was under Moses. And so much of what was given to them ceremonially has been fulfilled in Jesus and we're not under that. If you see some person who may be eating clean foods to follow the Levitical code, if they're doing it for health reasons, that's their liberty. If they're doing it for religious reasons, they're retrogressive. They're living in the past. All foods are clean. You can do it for anything you want for health reasons, but not religiously. That's legalism. But let me make some concluding applications, including the fact that we are still to live holy lives. Some concluding applications from the book of Leviticus. One thing we see is the unapproachable holiness of God, don't we? I mean, the New Testament says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Our God is a consuming fire, but we need the Old Testament narratives to vivify that to our minds. How holy is God? How unapproachable is God? If that priest made a misstep, if he went in when he shouldn't go in, if he gazed when he shouldn't gaze, he would die in the presence of God. Nadab and Abihu, priests, they offer something God didn't command it and he strikes them dead. God is holy, unapproachably holy. Certainly we see from Leviticus the seriousness of sin. The Lord made it a tedious, laborious, elaborate process to approach him acceptably So many steps needed to be taken, so much blood needed to be spilled, so much violence, why? Because we are so vile and so wretched and so offensive and so obnoxious to God in our sin that all that needs to be done to atone for it. But then thirdly, don't we appreciate the gloriousness of the cross of Christ? All of those pictures All of those feasts, the entire sabbatical calendar, all of the prescriptions for the priests with all their holy garments and elaborate rituals, all of the offerings of hundreds of thousands of animals and immeasurable gallons of blood spilled in Israel, they all point forward to and are fulfilled in one man, dying on one cross for several hours on one day in human history then rising again, ascending to the right hand of God the Father with all power and authority in the universe given to him to redeem a people. And so we need to obey the words that the writer to the Hebrews said to his colleagues, the Hebrew Christians in his day in Hebrews 10:19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, not of a tabernacle or physical temple, but the real holy place of heaven, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. How grateful we should be for Jesus Christ and his finished work that he has put an end to all of that elaborate ritual. And we have direct access to God through that one sacrifice made by that one man, the God-man on that cross, on that one day. How grateful we should be, who have come to God through him. But if any of you are not believers, how fearful you should be to try to come to this holy God any other way. You see what God thinks about people who try to come another way? You come through Jesus, and he accepts you, he welcomes you. But you try to come another way, and you'll be consumed by his wrath. Please don't try that. Don't try that. Come through Jesus. And then finally, even though a lot of the rituals to get rid of uncleanness are not followed anymore under the new covenant, God still is a holy God. And if we are his people, he still calls us to be a holy people. And let me close with just a few statements from the New Testament about how we are called to be a holy people. Right in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. He goes on to say, let your light so shine among men that they'll see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. 1 Peter 1.16 actually quotes Leviticus in saying, to the, God's new covenant people, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy. Hebrews 12.14 says, pursue peace and the holiness, without which no man will see the Lord. That is not imputed holiness. That's practical holiness, because you need to pursue it. That's holiness of life. 2 Corinthians 7.1, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of flesh and spirit, In Philippians 2, he says to his people, do all things without grumbling and and, and disputing that you may shine as lights in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. Peter says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And Paul indicts his fellow Jews by saying, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. But you know, even though we're called to be holy like God's old covenant people, we have an edge on them. There in Exodus or Leviticus 22, he says, you're to be holy, I, the Lord, am the one who sanctifies you. We have much greater power now than they had because God is at work in us to willing to work for his good pleasure. Not only have the motivation to be holy because he's redeemed us out of a greater slavery than Egypt, but we have a power greater than they had to be holy because of regeneration by the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Spirit who sanctifies us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what we learn from this book of Leviticus, so difficult to slug through because of all the details. Thank you for the picture of your holiness, our sinfulness, and your way of salvation seen in Leviticus. Thank you, Lord Jesus that you fulfilled all of those sacrifices. You are the final high priest and we need no other plea than that you have died for us. Help us to continue to worship you as we celebrate the supper. In Jesus' name.